bietjie stof in die licht, so, wil net die neus hier recht um, yeah, so we want to. I want to look at narratives, at story, um, and I want to ask the question: What stories mean to us, and what they mean to you? So, uh, I want to start off by opening it up in the room. Uh, why are stories important? Any ideas? Memory. Memory. What do you mean? Just remember things easier. Ah. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. That's perfectly true. Ah, it frames where we come from and where we're going. So it, it places us in relation to others. It tells us who we are. Wonderful. Anything else? Of what? Ah, okay, so it might, it might be like uh, getting new glasses about what, what your life is looking like um, by hearing other people's uh, stories. All right, wonderful. Uh, Vera, Torsten, come on. I mean, you literally, you literally get paid to do this. <laughs> and, and that's my sermon, guys. Uh, that's my sermon. Yeah. So that's all. Only meaning, identity, growth, purpose, community. That's all. That's, that's all right. It's a good start. Thanks, guys. Um, I think that's it. And Jesus loves you. No, I'm joking. Um, well, these, these points are all absolutely true. Um, oh, yes, Vera. Aha. Ah, oh, thank you. Yes, it involves us holistically. It's not just our cognition. And I'm going to get to that when I actually go through my, my, hopefully I'll remember to point that out. But thank you. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. No, stories engage all, all of who we are. Um, and, and that's exactly how our brains work. That's exactly what neuroscience teaches us. That's the way we make meaning. Uh, Ivan and I were actually talking um, beforehand about how uh, stories are such a powerful tool for advertisers for that exact reason. It's because you can relate to stories. You don't... The advert that sticks with you is worth far more than it's 20% more efficient. I mean, it, just that's, that fact isn't going to carry the weight of I love wearing these shoes, right? That's, that's a different class of thing. All right. Um, well, since stories do so much for us and frame who we are, where we're going, what our purpose and everything is, um, I think it's, it's worth for us to just take a look at that. Um, unfortunately, stories have been quite neglected. Um, ever since roughly the Enlightenment, which was a, a time where uh, people started looking back at older texts, um, scientific knowledge was uh, being prioritized over other forms or bases of knowledge. And generally, we are people who value knowing things far more than being known. But the problem is with stories, it's there where you are known, which, as Vera pointed out, stories give us access to aspects of reality which mere facts can't. All right. 
Here's an example. Here's a fact for you. Sin is bad. Okay? So just stop it. Just stop sinning. Right. How do you think that's going to work out for all of us? It would have been... It would have saved us a lot of trouble. But the fact is, a mere fact, knowing something is completely different than being known and knowing who you are in relation to that thing. So, here's my purpose. I want to persuade you that if we were to take stories seriously, I think there's one story that we can take seriously. And that's the one that's provided in this black book, the Bible. Um, and it's God's story. All right. Now, that might sound controversial, because surely we ha all have our own stories, but I'll explain in due time. Okay, so, let's go. Now, COVID, a few years ago, did this really, really powerful thing. Um, whenever a cataclysmic event happens, we have the opportunity to see what lies under the surface. And one of the lights that started flashing was the fact that we are meaningless. We are generally meaning-deprived in our culture. And the indicator, one of the indicators that, that pushed us there was the fact that we had to stop and sit still for a while. So we were forced in a room for three, three weeks, or a house, a little, a little flat maybe. And that waking up, going to work, uh, coming home, making food, watching Netflix, repeating, that rhythm started or the facade started cracking and 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 one way we can actually see this is since 2021 in america they call this the the great uh, resignation more than 10 percent of the american workforce has resigned from the jobs they were doing which tells us they, they just they can't do it they can't do it anymore it's empty and so we have this indicator like on your dash of the car that meaning thing is empty but it since we are meaning-making machines and our brains think in terms of meaning and story, surely that means that whatever cultural story we are telling ourselves, it's empty and it's devoid of meaning. And the indicator is exactly right for the following reason. There's been a few trends that have led us to being at the point where culturally it's accepted that there is no universal truth or meaning. Objectively, meaning is dead. And so, I mean, I, I don't want to do a complete philosophical, historical analysis. Um, but with postmodernism, everything is narrative. Facts can't be trusted. And your story is your story, and my story is my story. And so what's happened is all of us have to make our own meaning. That is the only route we have. Um, it's personified maybe in Albert Camus, um, but I'll get to him at the end. We have to will something for us. We have to find our own meaning. I want to illustrate this. Before this happened, it was like the following. A long time ago, there was a massive dome covering as far as you could see. This dome protected us when rains and wind came when the storms lit up, and everyone walking with their own umbrellas were relatively safe. But about 600 years ago, a few angry men found out that they were being deceived by this dome. They decided they can make their own dome, 
And they started waving their fingers at the sky and lifting their arrows and shooting at this dome until it cracked. And the whole dome fell from the sky. And all that was left is people walking in the rain, wet, with their shoes full of mud. That's sort of the experience that's come from the fact that what we call a meta-narrative, making sense of all of reality, has gone. And that's the point we find ourselves in, culturally. Uh, just quickly, did anyone watch Bo Burnham's uh, movie, I think it came out 2020 or 2021, Inside? It's this... <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say you guys are very good Christians, because I wouldn't be able to play one of their songs here tonight. Uh, the, he, it, it, he just personified that time. He made a movie on his own, in his room, in this one room. Everything plays out in this room, and he's a comedian, and he's absolutely hilarious. And he mocks with COVID and what we do without ever mentioning it. But as the movie goes on, it it becomes like a fever dream and all the jokes start becoming empty and it ends at a point where you walk out and it's, you're basically in despair. Okay, let's try something lighter. Did anyone watch Rick and Morty? Or has anyone? Okay, we've got one. Okay, that, honest Christians. Honest Christians. Good, 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 good. I mean, that's nihilism. That's nihilism. That, that sort of gives us a feeling of where we are culturally. That might be why a buzzword currently is deconstruction and not reformation. We can focus on taking things apart, tearing things down, but there's nothing in which we can frame and rebuild. All right. Now, enough of this analysis. Let's get to the juicy stuff. For the rest, I, I want us to, to look at Ephesians because I think the book of Ephesians and the counsel of God is going to show us a way through. And why I think this is the only real viable solution for us if we take the stories seriously. All right. Now, the book of Ephesians or the letter of Ephesians is just an absolute, absolute masterpiece. Um, one theologian called it the closest writing to divinity. It's, it's six small chapters. Six. It's like four pages. And Paul manages to tell the entire story of God from before time till what's going to come in the future. On top of that, he manages to squeeze in our relationship with God's chosen vessel uh, for salvation, the Jews. And on top of that, he spends half of the book teaching us on what it means practically. So what does it look like if this counsel of God is true. But before we read and go into it, we have to understand that another story is animating uh, Paul when he's writing this. And look, this book is saturated with the story. Um, uh, for those in our cell group, I just, we're, we're going through Galatians, which is the book just before Ephesians. And like, I think we, just, we should just go through Galatians 6 and then just Ephesians 1 and then just stick in Ephesians 1 for half a year. <laughs> see, see how that goes for us. It's just wonderful. The story that Paul has in his mind is explained in this, in this Bible. So I'm going to give us the, the too long didn't read version in six parts. So 
so that it can frame what we read and what we're going to experience. Okay, part one. Before time begins, God makes a plan so that he can save the people that he's going to make. And he creates the universe, he creates our planet, and he creates mankind, and it's good. And the pinnacle of creation are us humans, dust creatures. But somehow we are infused with his spirit. We are image bearers of God. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Part 2, <laughs> our favorite. Genesis 3 to 11. The woman, Eve, in the garden, listens to the most cunning animal on the planet. And the snake tells her she can write her own story. She can determine what's right, what's good, and what's true. She can become like God. And she listens. And from there, the consequences are catastrophic. Husband turns against wife. Brother murders brother. And finally, the corruption on the face of the earth is so vicious that God has no other choice but to restart everything. He collapses the entire, entire world into chaos just so that he can start again with a new remnant, with Noah. Everything has gone. But he makes a promise with, with Noah. There's hope. To Eve, God says, there's going to be a snake crusher one day. The same promise is made to um, Noah, that God will bless him. And then part three, Abraham, Genesis 12. God starts over again. And he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, through you and through your seed, I'm going to bless all people, everyone. And following Abraham, God starts with a parallel plan. He says, in order to reach that, I'm going to specifically work and bless your offspring so that everyone else can be blessed. And you can see this. He has two children, um, Ishmael and, and um, Isaac. <laughs> and he blesses both of them. To Hagar, he also says, you'll be a father of 12 sons and you will be blessed through them. God has a wonderful plan. But we know how the story goes. We have everything till the end of Malachi for part three. God blesses people. They become complacent or unhappy. They start getting idolatrous. They start wanting to do things in their own terms. And finally, it leaves, leads to chaos so that God has to step in each and every single time. And there's no one who's actually listening and trusting him. And whether it's Egypt, whether it's Babylon, whether it's Israel itself, whether it's Assyria, things go south. If any one of you have read through the Old Testament, we know that it's quite a depressive read, <laughs> to be honest. It's horrible. But God is at work in the background. He makes another promise to David as well. He makes a promise through Moses, which leads us to point four, part four. The main character of God's story, Jesus arrives on the scene. And he's born, just like us. He's human. And all those promises, the snake crusher, the one who will bless, the one from the line of David, the one who's uh, from the, the root of Jesse, the one who's going to carry the government on his 
shoulder, who's going to suffer. Everything is on him. So we know this part. Jesus um, willingly gives himself for our shortcomings, for our sin. He dies in our place. Legally, he can't be bound by it, and he is raised from the dead. And on top of that, he ascends. And ascension is part five. And this is the exciting part, because this is where we find ourselves. You see, when Jesus went up into heaven, he gave us a present, the Holy Spirit, and the church of God was born. We read this in Acts, Acts chapter 1. And throughout Acts, we start seeing what it looks like when people filled with God's Spirit are living it out. And it's, it's incredible. But Acts is interesting because it doesn't end as a closed book. We get to Acts chapter 28, and it's an open story, which reflects the following fact. You and I are living in chapter 29. We fit into the story. Now, with history, we're probably in chapter like 117 or whatever. But we are in here. This is not the end of the story. Because Jesus ascended so that he can do one thing, that he can reconcile everything in heaven and on earth back to him. And he's going to come back. We are living in, let's say, the... Um, a voorsmaakie, we have a, what's that in English? A foretaste of what's going to come. And Jesus is coming back. That's why Paul can say, Lord, please come. Because when he does, he's going to fix up everything that's been undone. He's going to make whole what's been lost. And so we have, in the counsel of God, a, a, being reunited through the Messiah, indwelt in the Spirit, living once again with God in perfect union. We're going to be better off than Adam and Eve. And that is the story saturating the mind of Paul. All right. Shall we head over to Ephesians? Okay. Um, Gior, can you please project that for us? Um, so I'm not going to read uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 1 and 2. I want you guys to follow along. Um, and really, with this mindset of this incredible counsel of God from before time, this triune God, let's listen to who we are and what God's plan for us is in this section. Now, I want to point out verse 3 to verse 14. Can I have 14 too? Okay. To verse 14 in Greek, it's, it's one sentence. Okay. I want you to just re remember this. This is one... I mean, we're used to tweets, we're used to memes. This is Paul. This is Paul being lyrical. Uh, it's uh, in a Jewish poetry style. So let's enjoy this. Ephesians 1, I'm going to read from verse 3 after the greeting. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, 
making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Wow, that's incredible, huh? One, one sentence. So, that's very rich. Um, I quickly want to hear, what stood out for you guys? What did you guys hear in that or notice? In one sentence, yeah. Incredible, huh? Dan? <laughs> That's beautiful. He drafts outlines before he writes stories. He expects us to be in those stories and to write them. Anything else? Hi, yai, yai, Anna. Very personal, isn't it? Um. We're sealed in with him, yes. Yaku. This whole sentence, it starts off with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then it ends with the Holy Spirit. So he frames everything in terms of the three persons of God working everything together, being held, as you said, now with the Holy Spirit. That's just incredible. Um, okay, well, what I want to ask you, and, and it might be a bit blunt, but who do you think you are? I'm not, not trying to force you to think uh, the right thing. But, but I, w I mean, in comparison with 
There is no meaning. You have to make your own meaning. Oh, you're going to die and everything's worthless. This, this is a bit of a contrast now, isn't it? If it were true. Right. Now, once again, facts on their own can't change you. But as to the degree to which a story which we make our own conforms to reality, to that degree it, it empowers us to live differently. Now, like I said, Ephesians 1, it's, it's where we're starting because it's all about who we are in Christ and making sense of our position in this grand, grand story. And verse 10, I'm just going to reread verse 10. Could you quickly go back uh, somehow? I'll, I'll wait. Um, because the whole of Ephesians is working out verse 10. It's expanding on it. In chapter 2, we see our position towards the Jews. Is God a God who is an bound by ethnic markers not anymore if you are not a jew by birth then we are on the same team and we have been reconciled with in the parallel plan that all people can be saved along with his chosen people that means we as a church are a multi-ethnic multicultural multi-racial multilingual organization. We are the most diverse organization on earth, by far, and we don't exist for ourselves. This is good news for other people, right? This is wonderful. In chapter 3, um, it, it, he, uh, Paul continues. He, he, well, he expands on this mystery, and he ends up with uh, spiritual prayer. And through everything, he points out that we are united in God, that everything flows from God. But then chapter 4, verse 1, starts with the following line. He says, therefore. And so what he basically indicates is everything, all this theory, chapter 1 to chapter 3, I wish we could have read everything, means practically the following. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this is Paul's plea. If the story is true, what it looks like is that we are holy. That's the biggest witness. We look different than what the Gentiles do or the people around us. That's the, the heart of it. That's our biggest evangelism tool that we have. Now, everything, what I want to do is from chapter 4, please get out your Bibles or your phones, right? We're going to just go through section for section from chapter 4 to chapter 6. And I just want to point out a few things. Now, I want to make this clear. I'm going to tell us a few things that we have to do, right? But I, Paul is not being a moralist. He's not saying, look, you have to do these things or else. What does he do? He says, look at who we are. Look at this grand story. This isn't even your story. This is Jesus' story. And look, he wants us to take part in that story. So let's do things in accordance to him. Okay, so when I say thing, these things, I'm not trying to say I can do them or that I do do them all the time, or that I'm better than you, okay? I, I want you to just have that perspective. So let's start in chapter 4, verse 1. And notice how Paul is saturated with the story, because he tells us why he tells us to do things, okay? He tells us why he tells us to do things. Chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, so we have to live differently. In chapter 4, verse 1 to 6, he says, basically, that we are to really, really, really love each other in unity. 
And the question is why? Right, so the answer is in verse 4. So I want someone to point out why should we love each other in unity? One body? One spirit? What else? Yes? One faith. One baptism. God is one. We are united in our relationship with Him. So we should, we should love each other in unity. What's driving His actions? It's, it's God's story. All right. Verse 7 to 16. He basically points out that we each have been given gifts. This is, this is wonderful. Um, and and I, I want to stop here just for a second. With the ascension, and, and I think this opened up for me in preparing for this, I always thought, okay, well, it makes sense. Okay, Jesus ascends to heaven. He sends his Holy Spirit. The case that Paul makes here is he, he quotes Psalm 68. And in that, it's a king who has attacked an enemy and has brought back pillage. Or his or bounty, booty, pillage, pillage, booty, loot. Yes, loot.co.za. Yeah. He, he did. He did. And the case that he makes is when he ascended, it says he gave gifts to men. And then he tells us what those gifts are. For verse uh, 11, he gave us the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, or oh, shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Look, there's a, a cosmic war that's going on, and God has saved us we've become his war loot and he's given it for each other you are the gift so do you know can, can i tell you a funny myth can i okay a christian that's just passive and that doesn't do anything at church <laughs> for paul this is a non-category you don't get someone who comes gets their sermon and goes home. It doesn't exist. You have a gift. Each one of us, we have gifts. Thanks, Marcus. Oh, he, he's just recruiting for the, if you can do music, amen, brother. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but why should we give ourselves as gifts to one another? Because we have been rescued in his story. He tells us that way. No, or that, he tells us that. Okay. He tells us to be more mature, to become more wise. Now, um, in my own life story, uh, chapter 4, verse 15, has been probably the verse that has uh, shaped my character the most. Um, I really have an affinity for, for or, or a love for chapter, uh, chapter 4 specifically. Um, but let's, let, let's go on. Um, 4 verse 17 to 32. Paul says, look, we shouldn't live like the Gentiles do. We just, we just shouldn't. We are made for something, for something else. When we were Gentiles, our minds were darkened. We were living purposeless lives. We were living for ourselves. We were alienated from God. We were doing what we wanted to do. That, that's not for us anymore. We are to live holy lives. 
We are created in God's image, in His likeness. We should be full of righteousness and live in holiness. Verse 32. We should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why should we be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another? What does the end of the sentence say? Verse 32. Four verse 32. Oh my, God forgave you. God forgave us in the following way. He was tender-hearted towards you. He was kind towards you. He forgave you when you were an enemy. Right. And that's why, unlike the moralists of uh, the ancient world, Paul says, look, you were dead. Take off that old self and put on clothes which matches your new regenerated self. You are a new person. Who do you think you are? All right. Let's go on to chapter 5, quickly. Uh, verse 1 to 14. He basically says we have to walk in love. We have to be pure. And we have to walk according to the light. Why should we walk according to the light? I'm not going to answer that. Verse 15. Be careful how we act in wisdom because there's evil about us. Verse 16. We should grow in discernment. That means we should become wise. You should, if you're not growing in discernment, it's an indicator that you're not growing and making the story part of who you are. Okay. Verse 18. Avoid being filled with strong drink, but rather be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Okay. He doesn't say don't drink. He says don't be a drunkard Live in such a way that the Holy Spirit wants to live in you. And he uses a few uh, examples of, of, of what the church is like. A temple and then a whole body. And we have to be built up into that. And the temple is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, right? And so that's how we should act. Verse 19 to 21. This admittedly is a pet peeve of mine. A little pet peeve because of where we are culturally. But one of the main signs that we have been regenerated is the following. 19 to 21. We sing. We are people who sing. Ah, oh, but I, I, I don't have a good voice. My word, he's... Think about the size and the scope of the story. You have the privilege of knowing Messiah himself. If that is true, you sing. You sing when you're alone. We sing while we're together. We don't have Marcus coming up every week because we want a rock show or acoustic session. We do it for this reason. When we sing, we give everything we have towards God. We're filled with Him. We're filled with joy. And, and we have the, the, the privilege of experiencing that joy. And in verse 21, we just quickly head there. It says this. I'm going to read from verse 20. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the reason he gives for singing and being thankful. So that we can submit ourselves to Christ. Now, from here on out, um, wives and husbands, children and parents and bond servants and masters, it's, uh, 
It's three pairs of relationships that Paul looks at from the, the perspective that our relationship is with Christ, all right? So if, if you're married, it means that the, the wife respects her husband, and the husband doesn't just live for his own selfish interests, but he, he, he sacrifices himself in the same way Christ sacrificed himself for us. So in the analogy, we are the wife, Jesus is the husband, in that way, in the way that Jesus offered up himself, just do that. Husbands and wives, just do that. Okay, children and parents, look, parents aren't perfect, right? But God is our parent. And so once again, he's using the, the fact of this relationship to inform what's going on. And then lastly, with bond servants and masters, now, I think bond servant, it all, you could also probably say slave. Um, contextually, that's the, the case there. But what it says is, look, if you're the main CEO of a big company, you're not better than the lowest ranking person. Why? All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And so what Paul is doing is he's reframing the way we even think about relationships. Okay. Finally, Paul, Paul goes big. He, he, the famous whole armor of God section, the end of chapter 6, it's, it's, he basically says, look, despite all of this, despite the fact that we can live in unity, we have to be aware of a fact. And that is that there are spiritual forces out there who want to undermine our unity and to want to, who want to break us apart. Okay? And so for that, we need to clothe ourselves with Messiah. Um, and, and what I mean by Messiah, it's a strange way of saying it, uh, we have to clothe ourselves with Jesus. We have to be Christ-like in order to resist the enemy. So for example, um, the, uh, the, the different uh, pieces of armor that uh, is worn, all represent different aspects of the prophecies of Jesus from the book of Isaiah. So he is our righteousness, like the breastplate of righteousness. He is our truth, like the, the sword of truth. He is our salvation, as the helmet of salvation, uh, the readiness for the gospel, which is his actual story. All of this says, clothe yourself and do what? Pray, 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 pray. Now, it's, it's quite a tall order, isn't it? I, I still think it's an incredible call to adventure. It's an incredible, incredible call to adventure. Now, having gone through this, I, I gave my moralist preamble. Uh, I once again want to ask, what came up? Two sentences, Gior. In Christ. Yes.
Thanks so much for that. Wow. Anything else that came up going through this list? Oh. Talkative crowd. Ay, 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 Gior. is I always thought, oh man, they're just talking about Jesus. I mean, this is so impractical. For Paul, this informs everything he does. Everything he does is informed by this. I said I'm going to try to persuade you that if we had to take stories seriously, I think there's one option on show. And I think this Ephesians thing, or this, the story that's being told here, is, is a very compelling story for us. But it's, it's compelling to the degree that we make it our own. And, and I think there's a few, a few reasons. First of all, his story makes our story worthwhile. Um, so we, we're saved from a meaningless life. Um, instead of just trying to make our own meaning taken seriously, we really have a position in this universe. There's a real plan for us, and we have a final goal. And what's interesting about this way of storytelling is I want to contrast two stories. The story of the Lord of the Rings versus, oh, let's take anyone, um, su uh, Superman. Okay, now my wife is going to rail. Let's make it. Uh, give, me a, give me a superhero. Batman. Batman. Okay, Batman. With comic heroes, that's the typical mythic stories that we tell ourselves culturally. Who's the hero? It's, it's, it's the central figure. We are the hero. It's the Batman is the center of the story, right? In this story, we are part of it but we're not insignificant in it. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in the following way. It's not a story about a bunch of friends, unlike what the Rings of Power tries to do, um, working together even though they look differently and to defeat evil. It's a fight between Morgoth and God. No single character destroys the ring. The God of the universe that Tolkien wrote, preordains and has everyone do their part. Near the end, Frodo, he gives up. He wanted to take the ring for himself. Boromir, who tried to take the ring for them, or to, you know, to be a conquering hero, they all fail. It's Gollum's weakness and folly that destroys the ring. But it's because the God of the universe had 
placed everyone to do their part. If Aragon hadn't tried to wage a, a, a war that he knew he was going to lose in order to distract Sauron in, or, or, uh, Sauron in the story, it wouldn't have worked. Everyone had to play their part. And so what I want to say is, instead of being a hero, know that you're part of something so much bigger. And that's why I think this is very, very, very compelling. You're not the hero, but man, God has a plan for you. And in the little glimpses we see in Scripture, there's a lot of responsibility and weight that's going to be placed on your shoulders if you are to follow through in this path. Secondary, or the second reason is idols. Now, I didn't touch on the cultural setting, but I mean, if you want to go to idol Mecca, that's Ephesus. Uh, apart from one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, the temple to Artemis being there, I think there were more than 37 temples dedicated to gods. On top of that, it was a port city. So it's a metropolitan port city full of idols. And look, we're sophisticated. We're not like those peasants. Our idols look much different. It's our job. It's our status. It's our car. It's if I can only achieve that or go there or be with this person or The fact is, even though it's not statues, none of the things that we actually put our hope in, in those little stories we tell, will give us meaning, joy, satisfaction. They can't. You can sacrifice to any idol, you can sacrifice your time, whatever it is, it's gonna be empty, and you're gonna be left with more fear. The story we have here, it says, look, you can have peace with God but it's Jesus' story, it's not your story. Then lastly, I think this story is the only option on the table where we can say we can live authentically, true to reality in a livable way. I'm gonna use two examples uh, as prototypes because there are two men who sort of epitomize the the cultural narrative of there is no meaning. The first one is that of Nietzsche, a man who said, any philosophy that's worth taking seriously needs a philosopher that leads by example. Um, Nietzsche never, ever, ever, <laughs> I mean, he was the opposite of his Ubermensch. He was a complete, and I, I mean, I don't mean to say this from a point of arrogance, he was a weakling, he was a real weakling. And he died in complete madness. He said, look, if God is dead, what stories are we going to make up? How will we know what's up and what's down? How are we going to wash the blood of, our, of, of, of ourselves? How? His, his proposal was by willing it. And he went mad. He went completely mad. Another man, Albert Camus, that I spoke about earlier, he was an existentialist. And uh, existentialism is vague, broadly, I, I, I just wanted to, I like this definition. It's sort of what atheism feels like if God does not exist. It's, you retreat to your, to your experience. And he writes this essay uh, on the myth of Sisyphus to say sort of, well, you know, just like Sisyphus climbing up the hill with his boulder and having it roll down, we have to just embrace this reality, even though it, there's no meaning, and we have to imagine him happy. And in that way, 
we'll be free. Albert Camus converted to Catholicism near the end of his life. He got baptized. It's not livable. The way we run away from it is by filling our lives with pleasure. We try to fill it by maybe becoming snarky and acting as if we're skeptical and thinking that that's a layer of protection. We do it by hiding behind things. But if we had to live with integrity with the stories that we actually tell ourselves, I think this is our only option. So I'm going to ask again, who do you think you are? Let's close our eyes. Lord, thank you for the surprising fact that we can know that we are part of your story and that you have shaped us, you have transformed all of reality. And despite who we are and what we haven't done and everything we've done wrong, you chose to, as enemies, love us and to reconcile yourself with us and make a way for us to, to really have life, joy, safety, and meaning with you. I thank you that we don't have to lose our identity in the process, but that we can become more who we are in you. Father, I pray that in the coming weeks, you would destroy every lie that we believe about ourselves, that we want to hold on to. And I pray that you rather infuse us with this incredible uh, counsel of your will. And thank you that we can know we can only find it in knowing you yourself, that you're not just a fact. You're a loving, wonderful, wonderful God, and, and, and we can know you. We want to thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.